There's nobody more confounding than Jesus. He just doesn't fit. In our imagination, in our world, he does not fit. And there's two big kind of streams, themes in his ministry, if you will, that they're they're on a collision course all throughout his ministry on earth. And you can see them so clearly. There's all sorts of conflicts and paradoxes in Jesus' life. But these two just kind of really stick out. One is that he's the most compelling person on the planet while he's here. If you're broken, he can fix you. If you're a sinner, he can forgive you. If you are in need of truth, he can reveal the heart of God like no speaker in the history of the world. He preached with such power that people gathered from all over Israel and beyond. In an age when nobody could telegraph or communicate or email or any of the things we have had for the last century, people found out about this man and they came running and they brought their children and they brought their family members and they brought the sick and the lost and the broken. And they gathered On the other hand, nobody could turn away a crowd. Nobody could turn off a human being as quickly as Jesus. When you got up close and personal, he was better in a group than he was in person because his innocence and his goodness, they also repelled. They didn't just compel people to come to him. They repelled people because his goodness showed a light inside of the human soul that we as people find uncomfortable. We don't like to have the light shown inside of us. And Jesus was and is light. And so he had this amazing ability to pull people together and he had this amazing ability to to speak words that drove them far from him. If he was, you know, around today and he wanted to be a megachurch pastor, he did it the wrong way. He just did. If he wanted to be a politician, if he wanted to be a leader, whatever John Maxwell would say about leadership, what about whatever Peter Drucker would say about leadership, Jesus did it wrong. He spoke the truth in such a way that it caused people to go running for the hills as quickly as possible. Let me show you just a little bit of what I mean. We're going to have to switch over to my slides, Jim, if you would, and we're going to switch over to this one. Just look at these stats. 5,000 people, the most ever gathered as far as we can tell around Jesus. There might have been many more in that passage because that was a a male count. The Bible's pretty clear that 5,000 men were fed at the feeding of the 5,000. There might have been any number of thousands of women and children as well, but they, they were fed by Jesus, and then what happened? They left. Right? They followed him across the Sea of Galilee, a few miles in a boat, and they came over, and Jesus said to them, Listen, you uh, want food, and I'm not going to give you any more. And they left because they weren't there for the great news of what God was really about. They were there for the fish and the loaves turning into enough to feed thousands and thousands of people. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to 500 people. But on the night of his betrayal and on the night of his trial, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, none of those 500 are present. Jesus stands alone. He sends out 72 in Luke chapter 9 and 10 but they go missing shortly after. He says these words that are really difficult to understand. You must eat my body and drink my blood. Cannibalistic language, and people are repulsed by it. And even some of those who did miracles in his name and preached and led, and even some of those who were seemingly fully devoted followers of Christ actually ended up being fully repelled fleers of Jesus' ministry. 
35 women and followers traveled with Jesus, including the disciples and people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, probably James and John's mother was one of them. There's a list of people that seem to just kind of walk around. There's Mary and Martha from the the town of Bethany, which is not far from Jerusalem. They followed Jesus here, there, and everywhere. And yet on the night of his trial, you'll notice they aren't there either. Then there's the 12 disciples. One of them betrays him outright. Eleven of them kind of run. When Judas kisses Peter, everybody heads for the hills. Then there's the three. They were called to the transfiguration, James, Peter, and John. They were called to the inner circle. They were part of Jesus' most closely held network. They were his supporters. They were the people he was supposed to trust the most. And they were there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they kept falling asleep in the night when he was going through his deepest, darkest, most spiritual travailing moment. Peter, James, and John asleep on rocks underneath these olive trees. We can picture them now, right? And at the final moment when Jesus is standing in trial, there's just nobody there, nobody with him. All fall away. Someone's going to have to take the fall, and socially, it's Christ, right? We're going to walk through a passage, Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 53, and we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is so absolutely capable in his goodness of offending human beings. And yet he's absolutely, throughout his ministry, historically been able to do this compelling work of drawing people to himself. In this passage, he's going to identify himself first, and he's going to show himself for who he truly is in a way that all the way across the Gospels, you're not going to see anywhere else. This is the first place that Jesus admits fully who he is in a way that people are just absolutely awestruck by and very much in rebellion towards. And then he's going to reveal his goodness in a way that's going to affect even the accusers, the people who are sitting in his midst. And then he's going to go one step forward, and that goodness is going to force a moment of decision in one of his followers, and maybe it's going to force a decision in your life. He's going to identify himself. He's going to reveal the goodness and the personal rightness of who he is as opposed to the wrongness of our world. And then he's going to end up forcing a decision that I think we're in the midst of, you're in the midst of, I'm in the midst of, and frankly, every follower of Jesus and every person who is yet to become a follower of Jesus is in the midst of. Let's begin reading with Mark chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And it begins this way, and we're going to take this passage apart as we go, and I'm going to try to help you understand the ironic nature of it because this is a very, very strange story. It says, and they led Jesus to the high priest. And if you knew, he's being led from the eastern side of Jerusalem down the Kidron Valley and up the southwest corner of Jerusalem. There are these steps, and they've uncovered them today, and it's most likely where Jesus walked. I stood next to those steps just absolutely awestruck a couple years ago in Jerusalem. And you can see these steps, and you can't walk on them because they're, they're restricted, but you can look at them, and they're probably the place where Jesus, along with these Roman soldiers in captivity, is brought to the southwestern corner of Jerusalem where they've actually uncovered covered this high priest's house and there's a cave underneath where they kept prisoners and it's probably where Jesus spent the hours when he was not in trial when he was waiting for Pilate when he was not in the middle of this kind of kangaroo court that we're going to read about this morning and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony 
did not agree. You need to think about this for a half second because it's just an absolute twist of irony what's going on in this passage of Scripture. In a Jewish court, you had to have two accusers who were eyewitnesses to the crime. These witnesses were probably paid off. If they weren't paid off, they were just deceivers, people who showed up in the middle of the night. When nobody else was around, Jesus is held on trial. If you get held for a trial in the middle of the night with no notice, where are the, where, where's the defense attorneys? Where are the people who were followers of Jesus? Where, they, they'd all fallen away. And part of why they'd fallen away is because the high priest had chosen this moment to accuse him and to wrongfully accuse him and to draw all of these testimonials, these witnesses, into trial. And they were there, and they needed to agree. And of all of the witnesses, only two of them needed to agree to fulfill Jewish law. And yet, they're all lying. And so none of them could agree. And the prosecution's case starts to fall apart. It's interesting. These these witnesses that are drawn together, they can't actually make sense of of an indicting sort of accusation. There's nothing that could hold Jesus over to go to trial the next day before Pilate. There was nothing in their words that was actually going to work because anybody sitting, 71 elders of the Jewish people most likely, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, sitting and gathering and watching this whole thing, they could not come to a place of understanding. They could not come to a place of unity around it because there wasn't two people who agreed about what was wrong with Jesus. Why couldn't they agree? Because there was nothing wrong, right? And everything they spoke was an untruth or a half-truth or just an outright lie. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Those are words that Jesus almost spoke, but they're not quite true. Jesus said, I, and he said this in the temple, he said, you can destroy this temple, and he was metaphorically speaking of his own body. You can destroy, you can tear apart what's going on in here, and I will rebuild it in three days. That's talking about the resurrection. But they twisted those words, and they turned it around to mean that there was a terrorist in their midst. And Jesus was somebody who was going to bomb the most noteworthy building in the Middle East, maybe in all the world, beautiful, 300 and some feet tall, standing in the midst of this mountain. This temple was the awe of the, of the civilized world in the time of Christ. And they said, listen, he wants to destroy the temple, but it was not true, right? One man in the middle of this story, gets his ear cut off because Peter decides to go to war on behalf of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? The great terrorist who's being accused with these half-truths, he picks up the ear that's lying on the ground and he puts it back on the man's head and he heals him. One of his accusers, one of the soldiers who's going to carry him away to this very scene, and Jesus is, that's not the act of a terrorist. He's not after some jihad there's no, there's no deeply militant nastiness in this man. Instead, there's peace. There's something inside of him that stands as light in the midst of darkness, and yet they're trying to accuse him of darkness, and it's not sticking because the darkness is not actually there. And anybody watching can see these witnesses are just getting nowhere with Jesus, and the courtroom is absolutely in chaos, and Jesus is saying nothing. His defense has nothing to do with the fact that the the prosecution's witness, the prosecution's attempts are falling apart. All he's doing is sitting there silently and watching them derail their own case. 
Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. In verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, and why does he stand up? Because he wants this man dead. And he realizes that all of the kangaroo court that's been held over to kind of keep Jesus into a place where he's going to be killed, all of this is not actually working. And he stands up to take control of the chaos and say, listen, we need this man dead. Let me somehow get myself in a position where I can be influential and sway this mass of people who's standing on the southwest of Jerusalem in the middle of the night when a courtroom should never be held because how can you find justice when there's no one there that can actually defend the, the, the accused and yet he stands up and he says in the midst of this I've got to take control and he asks a question have you no answer to make says the high priest what is it that these men testify against you what, what, Jesus speak for yourself let's listen to what he says But he remained silent and made no answer. You know, there's something absolutely confident and secure about Jesus. He's so humble. He sits in the midst of these accusers, and it's like it doesn't even sway him, affect him, cause him the least. I would be sweating. They have the power to potentially end his life if they can get the Romans to agree with them. And yet he sits there in the midst of this and he answers nothing. He could have started to blow holes in this prosecution. He could have started, I love courtroom dramas. I love television shows about that sort of thing. You do too, right? We all love, our. there's so many shows on television about this very scene. And I love it when the you think that justice isn't going to be done and then some attorney comes in from the side and thinks up some argument that nobody would have ever thought of and it changes the game all, all together. But Jesus refuses even that moment. He says this prosecution's case, which is in the midst of falling apart, he's not going to hurt them, help them. He's not going to say anything at all. And then this, and it is absolutely stunning. And if you can't get the nature of what happens in this moment, it is absolutely awe-inspiring, okay, what happens next. Because Jesus is about to be set free. What you are watching, what you are witnessing, what you are reading about in this passage is the freedom of the Christ. He is brought to a place where the trial has fallen apart and he is going to walk out without shackles, without being beaten, without the thorn of crowns on his head, without the lashes on his back, and certainly without the cross that's going to pierce his hands and feet. All of those things are never going to happen until he says these words that he's never said before in the history of his life. He's never admitted those others have accused him of this. Are you the Christ, says the high priest, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. You know, there's part of me this week when I read that, I said, why? Why, when you were innocent, did you finally speak the most indicting words that could ever be spoken? Because what these people were terrified of was a Messiah. What they were terrified of is somebody who had an authority greater than theirs. And in Jesus' words in this moment, when he says, I am, what he is admitting is, he is a threat to the power of Jerusalem. He is a threat to the power of Rome. He is a threat to every bit of self-sustaining, self-maintaining, manipulative power on this planet because he is the one who is predicted, the blessed one, the son of the blessed one. I am, he says. Why did Jesus in this moment, after two and a half to three years of every time anybody said, are you the Messiah? He deflected. He deferred. Peter at one point in, in the northern part of Israel looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, man has not revealed this to you, Peter. It is of God. God has somehow communicated with you. And that's a blessing. But don't tell anybody. Jesus has been holding this secret, not because it's a deep, dark secret, but because this is the one that forces the issue. We'll talk about this more later. 
And yet in this moment when he's about to be set free, in this moment when in the middle of the night even the Sanhedrin who is against him can't accuse him effectively, he all of a sudden outs with it and says, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, that terrible manipulator, tears his garments and builds the drama of the moment and says, look at this, it's blasphemous, unless it's not blasphemous, and then it's the true truth. It's the identity of this man standing before them. If it's truth, then why is he tearing his robes? Well, because he wants to maintain his power. And so he's going to twist this storyline and he's going to say, listen, listen, what further witnesses do we need? We don't need to hear any of these lying, deceptive speakers in our midst. They are not helping this come to a place of condemnation. Anyway, let me just let you understand that he has condemned himself because he has decided to tell us he's the Messiah. This is blasphemy, says the high priest. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Seventy-one hands in the air right now. Seventy-one. Absolute unity. Let's destroy him. Let's kill him. Let's beat him. Let's mock him. Let's end his life. Seventy-one hands just immediately because of this revelation that Jesus speaks out. And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. We have to ask ourselves, who is choosing this battle that Jesus is in the midst of? And we have to ask ourselves what sort of battle this is, because Jesus identifies himself, and then he shows his goodness in ways that are counterintuitive and, frankly, less than productive if he wanted to go free. And then ultimately, what he is in this moment, who he is in this moment, what is inside of him, what is hidden by all of this exterior, exterior non-glory, the, 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 the just average humanness of Jesus. What's being hidden is the absolute amazing nature of the glory of God, which is in the midst of these people. He is good and they are bad. He is light and they are darkness. He is truth and they are filled with lies. And when he identifies himself, it starts to twist the storyline into places that will go towards the glory of God and nobody will see it coming. This is an ambush, and Jesus is choosing this as the moment to reveal himself. After moment, after moment, after moment, when he has decided to to hide who he is because it will force the conflict too early, in this moment he is standing the midst of, uh, in the midst of the great darkness of our world, he is standing as the tiny little flickering light of a human being who is absolutely good, which no evil can stick to, no accusation can effectively communicate, because He's nothing dark. He's never looked at a woman the wrong way. He's never subtly deceived and manipulated when he shouldn't have. He's never taken something and defrauded a human being in a business deal. He's never lied about his taxes. He's never cut someone off in traffic. There's nothing he's ever done that can work. And they can't find a witness who will say it's true, at least effectively. And yet Jesus offers this moment to give us the truth that causes the biggest conflict. And it's because this is the moment when the biggest conflict needed to take place. God chose this as the propitious moment. It's the moment of all times waiting for There, there has been a, a, it's millenniums of, of history waiting for this moment. And Jesus is setting the stage, not these high priests who think they've got him, not Judas who thinks he's betrayed him, not the disciples who have run and hid, not the people sleeping in their beds, not the Romans who are afraid of a, of a rebellion. None of those people matter because Jesus is choosing this as the moment. And he says, it will be done tonight. 
In this day, it will be finished. And he begins here to say, this is when. I don't walk free. I walk into the trap that Satan has set, and I will win. I will win. Jesus' identity in this passage, what he says is this. I am, and you will see the Son of Man. That's how he answers the question. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. How many of you just have something go off in your head when you hear that word, I am, those words, those simple words? In Exodus chapter 3, there's a conversation. In Exodus chapter 3, there's a conversation between God and Moses. And it's a conversation that's not going very well for Moses. Over and over again, these conversations don't go well with God's servants. God shows up and says, listen, I'm going to send you. And Moses says, I don't want to be sent. You've got to find somebody who can speak better than me. All across the Old Testament, people are going to echo this very line again and again and again. Isaiah is going to say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why would you choose me to be a prophet? Jeremiah says, I can't speak, I'm no good. Ezekiel says, I'm going to die because I've seen the glory of God. Prophet after prophet after prophet stands in the line of Moses and says, I can't handle this God and I can't handle the call that he puts on my life. And Moses begins all that with a five-part argument in the middle of which he says this line, you're sending me to the Israelites, the the Hebrews, in Egypt, and you're sending me to set them free, and you're saying your power is enough, but I don't even know who you are. They know who Ra is. They know who Malak is. They know who Baal is. They know who Ashtaroth is. They know God after God after God, but nobody knows you, God. And then God offers a, a, a word, and it stands in the midst of all of the world of history, all of the scriptures as one of the most important words you're ever going to hear. He says, I am who I am. In literal Hebrew, I am Haya. I breathe. I live is what that word means. I am life. And everything else is a lesser life because it came from me. There is no angel. There is no demon. There is no dark thing or light thing that didn't somehow come from this God. The dark things have twisted their origins and gone in this dark way. But the light things are still being fought. And in the midst of this great grandeur, God is fighting for their life. And he is sending Moses to fight for some of their lives. And he says, you tell them I am. And then you watch Egypt shake. And you watch it be brought to its knees. And you watch as as plagues just pour on and the I am shows how much powerful, more powerful he is than every other God on this planet. And Jesus in this moment decides to go far beyond saying, I'm the Messiah, which is interesting. In Daniel chapter 9, it says he is the anointed one. There will be this anointed one coming. And that word, the Meshach, to be anointed is to be Meshach. And then if it was a noun, it would be Mashiach. And we get the word Messiah from that. If it was a Greek word, it would mean Christos or sound Christos. And then we'd get Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. That's his title. He is the anointed one that all of the anointed ones have been waiting for. Romans chapter 8 says that the, the earth has been groaning for the revelation of the sons of God to be revealed. And here he is, the origin, the beginning, the start, the son of God who's going to give birth to many other sons and many other daughters. You and I are some of those sons and daughters. And he says in the midst of this, I am the Messiah. And not only am I just the Messiah, I am the I am. That is offensive. 
or it is true. And there are no two ways about it. And the high priest tears his robes and says, this is blasphemy. And yet what he's saying is, I am the God who is showing up. The way he showed up in the life of Moses, the way he showed up in the life of Noah, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, no matter what passage you want to look at, this God was there. Jesus was there. And he's revealing himself and he's saying, I know I look small and I know I look human. He was probably 5'8 in height and had pockmarks on his face from acne and had all of the brokenness that's endemic to our race because cancer could get to Jesus and heart disease could get to Jesus and all of the things you struggle with and I struggle with physically. This Jesus struggled with and he looked to be in their midst just another Jewish man except when he opened his mouth, what happened was whatever he said should happen and that is different than me and that is different than you. When he said, let light shine in the darkness, it happened on the first day of creation. And he's saying it again in this very passage. In the darkness of Caiaphas and Annas' houses, in the midst of 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 a deep moment of trial, let me speak the truth because it will birth a light in the midst of darkness. And you will think you are going to quench that light. But let me tell you, you won't quench it. Something else counterintuitive, completely opposite will come from this moment. The grace of God is showing in these people's midst and they don't understand it. And there's a reason for that because their hearts are darkened and sin-filled as are mine and as are yours. And Jesus says, I am, and I choose this moment, and we will fight. And he's not fighting Caiaphas and Annas. He's not fighting... He's not fighting the Romans. He's not fighting Pilate. He's not fighting the Sanhedrin. He's not fighting his own disciples. He's not fighting any of the humans in the circle. He's choosing this moment, that there is an enemy beyond all of them. Satan means adversary, and he is fighting that one adversary, and he is drawing him to Jerusalem, and there will be a showdown like Elijah on Mount Carmel, like David in front of Goliath, and it will once again pit the meek and the mild, the least of these against the most of those. All of the powers of this age gathered. The darkness would rage the next day. The earth would shake. The temple would absolutely rip its own curtain in two with that shaking. And in the middle of this darkness, he would say, I am the light and it will be finished. And I have chosen this moment. I, the God of the universe, who has spoken light into darkness, who have said, let the sun hang itself in the sky and it has listened. When the waters decided to separate themselves because this God spoke, it was nothing compared to this moment. It is as though he is saying, in the name of God, stop. Telemachus quotes him four centuries later. In the name of God, stop the darkness within you. Let me birth the light. I am and I am here. And you think that this is about a kangaroo court in the, in the dark of night in the southwest corner of Jerusalem. But let me tell you that Satan is coming and we are going to face off. And he's going to think he won, but it's going to go a different direction than he ever expected. I am revealing myself for the first time, says Jesus, and you don't need to buy it because who could buy it from a 5'8 Jewish man who looks like every other Jewish man on the streets of Jerusalem except for these powerful words keep echoing across the ages and they transform lives millenniums later. This is God. The, the, The courtroom is different than we see it. It's, I don't think it's different than Mark saw it. I think he understood it better than us. Let me read this verse 65 once again. I've emboldened it for you. It says, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. I've been to court a few times. Sometimes I've been sitting there with the accused. And I've never seen the bailiff at the end of a trial when he, when the judge pronounces somebody guilty, come over and beat that person. You know, once you've won a court case, you feel good. And these guys win their court case and they feel bad. 
Something has happened in this courtroom that has shown a light into their souls in a way that they find deeply offensive and they are hurt and angry and they must react and they must express their violence and their vitriol and their malevolence for who Jesus is. And so they gather around him and they start spitting on him, which has got to be the worst thing. Of all of the violence that happens to Jesus, spitting is just It's unbelievable. I know it doesn't hurt that bad, but let me tell you, it is the way of showing derision in a way that, you know, it's just deeper and darker and nastier in some ways in my imagination. They spit on him and they covered his face and they struck him and they said, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They didn't receive him and just say, let's send him to jail. They said, let's beat him for a while because we need to get outside of us the darkness that's inside of us. And his light has shown into our lives and shown our darkness. It's shown us our darkness. He's revealed himself. This trial is working the opposite way of what it's intended. Jesus is looking better and better, and for centuries the church has recognized this, because in his innocence he is showing, in his goodness he is showing the darkness of humanity and the brokenness of our spirits and the little corners of our soul that we want to hide. He is exhibiting for everybody to see. In the midst of this brilliant light that is coming from him, they can't hide anymore, and they realize that they are twisted, and they are drawing in people who are witnesses to this twistedness and all of this darkness They know they're not just. They know they're not right. And his goodness is showing it for what it is. Every one of us, when we are brought into the face of absolute goodness, we see inside of ourselves in a way we never have. And we all desire one thing. And we go in two different directions about it. We either flee or we fight. Scientists call it that adrenaline rush, the fight or flight perspective, right? You know, when you see a bear in the woods, what do you do? You run. When you see something violent occurring and your life is in danger, you run or you decide that this is absolutely a situation that requires me to enter in and fight. Jesus had this effect on people all the time. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him. One of the Sanhedrin members comes to him in the middle of the night and he says, Jesus, I need to talk to you about all of this different stuff. And he says, listen, you need to be born again. You are a leader in Israel and yet your heart is darkened and your soul is clouded over and you need to be born again. And he says, I don't know how to do this. I can't crawl back inside my mother. And they have this conversation that is just muddled and just filled with all of this confusion because Nicodemus is running. Jesus is shining light on his life. And Nicodemus, like I've done and like you've done, is saying, I don't want to see that light inside of me. I don't want someone good to show me my bad. I don't want somebody light to bring darkness into my midst and show me that that's coming from me. And he says, listen, I'll think about this. And then the conversation ends with just this Nicodemus who wanders away into the night. And we don't know where that goes until just a couple days in the future from this story we're reading. But that's not the end of the story. There's somebody who flees. John chapter 4 has this woman at a well, and Jesus meets her. She's a Samaritan, and they go back and forth, and Jesus speaks to her the truth of her life. You've had several husbands, five in fact, and what's more is now you're living with a man who's not your husband. You are an immoral woman. There are words for people like you. He doesn't say that, but everybody in her town had already said it, and she didn't need anybody to reveal more. He knew the true woman at the well, and she did not enjoy being known. And so she turned into attack mode. And she said, you tell us that we can't worship in Jerusalem. As Samaritans, we're not allowed in your temple. How am I supposed to be a moral human being avoiding all of this nasty immorality that I'm in the midst of? How do I avoid sin? These men come to me and I enjoy that and I'm alone and I can't go to the place where I wouldn't be alone because you won't even let me go to the place where God exists. He lives in your temple and you won't let me there. So I might as well go with these men. She's picking on him as a Jew, and he doesn't fight back in the least. 
He says, there will be a moment when we don't worship in Jerusalem. We don't worship where Samaritans do on Mount Gerizim. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And your heart and your your soul, they are going to unite in a place where the truth and the spirit are blessed. And you are going to be blessed. And, And she becomes a follower of Jesus on the spot. But not before we see her soul, which says, if you're going to attack me and show me the truth about my life, then I am going to hide or I am going to run or I am going to fight. And she fights. And she loses to the benefit of herself, right? You and I are like this. Walt Wangren, in in this, this week, in the readings, there is this amazing quote. I want to read it for you. He writes this, Goodness is a spotlight. It shines on our shame, our filth, our deformities. It picks out the parts we hide from the world and even from ourselves. We will strike at that light. We'll haul it into court, discredit it, and smash it in order to put it out. We'll spit on it and belittle it. We'll blindfold it, hit it, and ask it to prophesy, all to prove what fraud this prophet is. Not one of us wants Jesus to be right about us, because if he's right about us, we're wrong, and we don't like being wrong. We wish Jesus would show up in our life and heal the things that are wrong with us without actually indicting us about the things that cause those things that are wrong. He shows up in our life and says, you know that stress you're feeling, the wrinkles that are starting to occur in your skin, and the joints that are starting to fall apart in your stomach, which is eating its own lining because of the stress that you're in? It's because of the darkness in your soul. And I want to take that darkness from you and I want to bring into light the very inner part of who you are and I want you to live in unity with you. And I want you to live in unity with those who love you. I want you to live in unity with the world around you. I want to bring this to you. And we say, if you can do that without showing us ourselves, if you can do that without showing us who we are to those who are watching, we don't want to know about the darkness in our lives. I, personally, Josh Bightwork, do not want to know about the darkness in my life. And yet as often as I go before God... He brings this out, and he brings it with kindness and just a gentleness of heart. He loves. And he's speaking, and in this moment, he's saying, I am the I am, and I am good, and I know I'm small, and I look insignificant, but let me tell you that I'm going to shine the spotlight into your life, and I'm going to shine it in there, because for the na- in the name of God, stop the atrocities that are committed in the human soul, because God loves to live in the human soul. This is the temple that will be. You and I are the temples that are called into being in this age. And in the midst of that darkness, we don't let God in there with all of what's evil about us. Indicting, I know. But Jesus, his goodness shows up in the midst of Caiaphas and Annas, these high priests and their families and the Sanhedrin. He shows up in the midst and they are accused rather than him. They look bad rather than him. He looks innocent at the end of it because he's speaking the actual truth. And they look dark and evil and twisted because they are trying to indict somebody who is absolutely unaccusable. The trial turns the wrong way. And for all of history, the church has recognized that these are the men who maybe most culpably murdered Jesus. And yet he forgave them. That's not the end of the story, and we have to end, so I'm going to move quickly. There's one little paragraph we have to read in closing, and it's about Peter, because... Sitting off on the side, this is a cosmic battle. Satan is gathering the forces of darkness. The evil is in the midst of this this city of Jerusalem. It's becoming the central place of focus on planet Earth. And Jesus says the light is shining in the midst of it. And this is a cosmic battle in the heavenlies. We don't even understand how it all took place. And yet there's a subplot, a tiny little theme off to the side that we have to watch, and it's Peter. As Peter was below in the courtyard... As these things were taking place, Mark just includes this as part of the story. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, 
You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Peter didn't notice that first rooster crowing. You notice that? It took another time. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know what this means or know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then Peter broke down and he wept. One of the Gospels makes it clear that Jesus and Peter in this moment make eye contact. You know, Peter is like a little snow globe on maybe my child or your child's dresser at night. You know, it looks so clear and pristine. You can see right through it. Maybe it's London or New York City or Philadelphia. And you can see all of those little towers. And you can see all those little buildings. And there's nothing covering it up. And the light, you can see it. The water is clear. But then you turn it upside down. And what happens? Everything in the bottom mixes in with all of that liquid and you can't see a thing, right? Peter has preached the word. He has cast out demons. He has healed people. He has baptized people. And yet, when tipped over on the night when Jesus predicts you are going to be sifted and like wheat by Satan himself, Peter, you are going to be tempted and you are going to deny me three times before the the rooster crows twice. In the middle of that, his life is overturned and all of the darkness that's sitting like sediment on the bottom of the pond comes to the top and it clouds his whole perspective and everything about Peter is a twisting. He doesn't know where to go. He's thought he was being loyal and he's killed or attempted to kill one of the high priest servants and effectively he's done nothing because Jesus put the man's ear back on and he was in the midst of following Jesus but he didn't know how to stand up and maybe Jesus didn't want him to stand up anymore and he goes back and forth back and forth and his own soul is twisted because there is darkness and there is light and because there is evil and he's not fully devoted to the plan of God and he doesn't understand the plan of God and who could and yet it's because of the sin inside him he's heard of the of the of the cross and the death of Jesus and he's been he's heard it predicted that Jesus will rise again and yet he can't buy it in this moment and he doesn't understand this moment for what it is and in it all of that truth he stops and he realizes and he catches the Messiah's eye and it just it just hits me like a ton of bricks that the Jesus of the universe who is called into being the very the very molecules that make us up is in the most cosmic battle of all time and this is the moment when he will win and he takes a break from all of that to look at Peter and with his laser vision he offers I suspect a hopeful glance remember Peter not an I told you so but I told you this would happen And you're going to be okay. Last through this moment, Peter. You're in the middle of darkness and your soul is twisted. I get it. But you are going to last through this moment and there will be a resurrection and I will come alongside the Sea of Galilee and I will make you breakfast and I will say, let the little children who are you become the feeders of my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. And he makes Peter a missionary, one of those sent ones who's going to go out and change the known world. Within a couple hundred years, the majority of the Roman Empire will be Christian. And part of the reason is Peter. And part of the reason is Paul. And part of the reason is all of the others. In this moment, he 
chooses, Jesus chooses to disciple his most ardent follower, his disciple. He changes the game for Peter in this moment. And we must see it because our souls sit in the very same place. When you tip us upside down, we don't have the fruits of the spirit float around our lives. We have darkness and difficulty and the corners of our soul are revealed for what they are. And there is brokenness inside them. And the light of Jesus shines in the midst of all of that. And he shows us for who we are. We are not good. We are broken. We wish we were good, and we need to see ourselves for who we are. We are self-deluded sinners, like Peter. And we want to accuse. We want to flee. We want to fight. And God says, no, let me just show you yourself, and let me cleanse it. There's a passage of Scripture, almost at the very end of the Bible. John, who was there this night as well, speaks it, and it's his I, I suspect we think of these things as like prophetic and amazing that John speaks to them, but I think they're observant. He witnessed Jesus do this, and he said, if we confess our sins the way Peter does on this night, he weeps. Instead of fleeing or fighting, Peter falls on his face and says, I don't know what to do but to cry because what's in here is so messed up. He thinks he's done with God, and maybe this is the most hopeful moment for Jesus in the life of Peter because Peter's going to finally admit what he truly is. And he weeps. And in that moment, he confesses and he agrees with God about his sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to get rid of it, to cleanse it from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus offers us this. This illuminated bit of light in the midst of vast darkness is going to, within three days, absolutely birth a resurrection that smashes the darkness into smithereens and brings to truth and life what has been hidden for all of eternity. What has been hiding in the midst of all of the darkness is the fact that Jesus can win through losing, that as everybody falls away, he can shout out with his very life, In the name of God, stop. Stop the atrocity. Stop the sin. Stop the hiding. Stop the secrecy. Stop the deception. Become one of my children of light. If you will just confess and be open, if you will decide at the last moment to offer your soul before heaven and say, risen Savior, please, by all means, shine the light of your goodness in my soul and help me to see what's wrong with me and help me to admit it and help me to walk away from it. Then the God of the universe shows up in all power like he showed up 2,000 years ago and he, can, he cleanses and he renews and he forgives. We need that, don't we? That's what Lent's about, isn't it? That's what this moment, when everybody thinks they have Jesus dead to rights, what they actually have is nothing at all, and he has us all dead to rights. We are dead in our trespasses, and he died while we were yet sinners, and he has offered us a righteousness that no one can even think about equivocating on because God has declared it so. Join me in prayer.